and welcome everybody to the Union Federation podcast here on the Phantom Podcast Network and the BQN Network. Of course, this is this podcast that covers everything that is happening in both Star Trek and the Orville here on the Phantom Podcast Network. And for now, we are all about Star Trek Prodigy. We have just hit the finale of season one, uh, Supernova Parts 1 and 2. And we are going to be doing the deep dive into these episodes, as well as some th- overall thoughts on season one of Star Trek Prodigy on this episode. But I cannot do this alone. I need a crew. I need a top-notch crew. And it all starts, of course, with our favorite holographic captain and top-notch ship counselor, Miss Amy Nelson. Well, hello there. How you been, Amy? You went a little bowling. You've been been traveling all over. Yes, it was nice to have a little break uh, after Christmas. Um, But man, I've been back to work now for a week and it feels like Christmas was so long ago. (laughs) It, it, It does. But some guy who I know is always in the Christmas spirit is, of course, the co founder of the Fandom Podcast Network, my brother from another mother, top notch security officer. Mr. Kevin Reitzel. Yeah, top notch, yeah, give or take. But yeah, good to be back. How are you, man? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm excited. And I'm very excited because he's come through a, t- he's traveled time and space through an amazing wormhole to join us for this episode of Union Federation to talk about something I think has creeped up into his favorite Star Trek shows. And that is Star Trek Prodigy. But of course, the former founder of the co founder of the Phantom Podcast Network and the man who hosts Mission Log, Mr. Norman Lau. I really wanted to come in uh, in this segment with like Amy's incredible hair flip. I don't have that, but I watched her when she caught She's like, and you brought her and she's like, well, hello. Like, <laughs> oh wow. Gosh. That was amazing. I don't know how I'm going to top that. Forget it. Just kick me off the show. Yeah. Well, well, no. And if you notice on, on social media lately, Amy's been getting the hand on the hip thing going on pretty well too. <laughs> her flair is fabulous. She's got that pose down. Yeah. yeah. Um, but thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm always excited to be back on here. Good you to have you, Norman. Love you guys. Love seeing you all. And uh, I have much to say. You're not, you're not far off, Kyle, about how I feel about a certain Star Trek show that's animated. That's not Lower Decks. I'm just, you know, these are the checklists that I'm trying to give people and not be too specific. Uh, just yet, but you might be able to guess. Maybe, maybe you're able to guess. Yeah. Maybe I mean, if you want to go back to the classic Star Trek, the original series animated, we can do that. But <laughs> I'm just saying, I said I didn't. I just <laughs> give you a checklist. That's all. Yeah. But however, we are here to talk about all things Prodigy. So without further ado, let's kick things off by giving you a little bit of this. That is right. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the two-part season finale of Star Trek Prodigy Supernova Parts 1 and 2. Um, we got, we've got the protodrive up and running. So without further ado, let's get into Star Trek Prodigy. So let's start things off with Supernova Part 1, the first part of the two-part season finale of Star Trek Prodigy. Amy, would you be so kind to give us the episode mission log for part one of Supernova? Admiral Janeway successfully persuades the guard to release her. The protostar crew take back control of their vessel and attempt to escape, but are fired upon by the fleet. Asensia subdues everyone in the transporter room and beams onto the protostar with the diviner and dreadnought. Gwen tells Dahl about... It's Starfleet ineligibility, and he vows to help the rest of the crew join. 
Dal and the others fight Dreadnought but are easily defeated. Gwyn and Asensia fight on the bridge. Gwyn gains the upper hand but is subdued by Dreadnought. The Diviner is fatally wounded after attempting to save his daughter. Asensia activates the weapon and the fleet begins destroying itself. Before he dies, the Diviner entreats Gwyn to unify their people. Gwyn sends out a distress signal, which is answered by several species. Additional Federation ships arrive and are immediately targeted by the weapon. The crew of the Protostar watches as the Federation Armada and their allies collapse around them. So many starships. Um, let's get some initial reactions to this episode, the first part of the season finale. Mr. Reitzel, how did you what did you think of this first part of Supernova? I thought the scene where um, Dal misreads what Gwen is saying and plants a kiss on her. I thought that was really cute, <laughs> you know, because it reminded me of so many awkward situations when I was a teenage a man. <laughs> 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 but I was really happy with where this was going. And, I, you know, I, I watched him back to back. I didn't watch one first and then wait the next week. I decided to wait and watch them back to back and kind of watch them as a little mini movie. And uh, I was very pleased with the pacing of it and just everything that was happening with all the characters in here and visually fantastic as well. Uh, but I, I liked, I like that we're seeing a lot of character development among this first season uh, among the characters basically. So, yeah. Miss Nelson, what about you? What were your thoughts on the first part of the season finale. Yeah, I also watched them both together. I don't know where I was. Life got busy and I missed the first week. And so anyways, um, and so uh, it's going to be very difficult uh, to try and find where that break is for the episode. Um, but yeah, I really did like the cute kiss hesitancy and, and where that little story ended up. The space battles and just where it left off. That was a great cliffhanger. However, dot, 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 I would like for you guys to maybe help me because my head cannon is not working. Those ships were firing upon each other. They were getting hit and exploded. And I'm like, why didn't they all die after the first two or three hits? I mean, that's sort of like if they were fighting a foe, you know, it would, you know, if their shields were down like they were, I just don't see them taking that many hits and then surviving and being good. So I don't, you can put a pin in it, but that sort of took me out of this first episode. That's an interesting point, Amy. And I mean, who knows? Maybe they've been making starships out of sterner stuff of weight, but it's hard to say. But Norman, mm. now I, I got to say, I have been following you on social media with all your talk mm. of Prodigy. I know mm. how much you love this show. Yeah. How were how you feeling after watching part one of Supernova? Well, first of all, uh, we got to give like all the credit to Erin McNamara. And I think this is like her first actual script. You know, she was a script coordinator for Star Trek for like several years. And she was like given the green light to go ahead with the script. So I'm like, wow, uh, that's I mean, she knocked it out of the park. It was fantastic. Um, I, I said this on the Mission Log Prodigy um, podcast. I said this. It's hard for me to really like not 
take both episodes, you know, in, you know, at the same time when it comes to a critique, you know, you can always say like, yeah, part one's great, but it's really, a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a singular episode that was divided in half, but uh, the, the moments of tension were there. The one big thing though, I really think that um, I took away from it. And I think that maybe other fans took away from it. The quality of the writing is so good that when you take the initial villain of a series like Darth Vader and make him sympathetic by the end of that, of that series of say, at least with star Wars, like films, you take the diviner at the end in Gwyn's arms and you're sympathetic towards him. You're like, you know, he's the villain. You know, he's the person that you've been kind of like rooting against this entire time. And you've been rooting for the heroes to defeat him. But then you really see the motivations behind the diviner and what the diviner only wants. He wants the reconciliation of his people now through his daughter because he can't do it. And that's kind of like where, you know, a lot of like villains, if they're written well, you know, can they, they can end up in that space like Vader at the end of Return of Jedi, where we're like, we've been hating on this guy for like, what, six years or something like that. And then all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to him when you actually care about what's going to happen to the villain? That's when writing, I think, is at its best. And when he was in Gwyn's army, like, wow, I can't believe I actually I'm actually caring what's happening to him because it becomes a very human moment. Right. It becomes just a very relatable moment. Uh, and and I think that that's where Aaron did a really great job with nailing this script. You bring up a great point, Norm, because that was what actually stood out for this episode for me was we get the kind of the end of the of the Diviner's arc, and you look back at his arc through this twenty through these nineteen episodes he was in, going from so insanely evil when we first see him. And I mean, just mm -hmm. like we're we're putting this guy up at con levels as far as Star Trek villain and Borg levels and things like that. And to see how he turns through all of his experiences and how well it was written in really a short time frame of just 19, 19 half hour, not even full half hour episodes, I thought was amazing. Kevin, what did you think with the way they, because I think that's just, again, the, the exclamation point of part one is the end of the Diviner story in a way. Yeah, you know, thinking back to how when we were introduced to him and what his plan was and him just kind of tossing in a way tossing his daughter aside at least you know depending on the perspective that you look at it and being able to uh i guess humanize someone like that does take really good writing and uh it was uh i, I wasn't expecting him to die but i'm I, i'm fine with it i, I think that uh, i you know, I am kind of gonna miss John Noble's voice though, because I'm just I'm a huge fan of him and and uh, you know really getting you know back in my early 2000 fandoms with uh, you know him and Lord of the Rings and Fringe, you know, I, I, and having meet, met him at a convention once too, just a great guy. Uh, but um, I just gotta throw a shout out here though. Um, Ronnie Cox comes back as Jer Jericho. <laughs> I am a huge fan of Ronnie Cox and uh, it was nice to see, uh, excuse me, Jellico come back uh, from what was it? The chain of command next generation episodes from uh, mm -hmm. season six. Now he's Admiral and uh, voice sounding a little more, you know, rougher, but uh, he was that captain you hated, but man, he was fun to watch on screen. Amy, what about you? How was your feeling on the diviner story arc coming to a head in this episode? 
Um, I wasn't a big fan of it. However, I totally stand behind the story and the meaning and the purpose of it all. Um, it just was hard to swallow that it's like, okay, we're just going to forgive him. It felt I needed, I guess for me, I needed him to do a little bit more penance um, with his actions because he was so mean and terrible to Gwyn and human trafficking young children. Like these are major, major offenses that we're just going to, oh, because you actually, you know, were captured by Janeway and learned about her and you were basically forced to, you know, see what the Federation is before you changed your heart. Uh, I don't know. But what I do love is the message that Star Trek is telling us. No matter who you are, there is redemption. There is hope. You can turn a new leaf. You yourself can be better. And so I love that story arc with the Diviner. I, I think I think the Diviner story arc was definitely one of the highlights for me of this season. I have a feeling we, Kevin, that you're going to get more John Noble in Prodigy when it, before it's all said, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But one other thing I want to talk about as far as this episode, guys, too, was I want to talk about our crew itself because they faced a lot of adversity in this episode, not only with everything <laughs> happening around the Starfleet, but when you have the Dreadnought and the Diviner and Essentia boarding the Protostar and the Dreadnought kind of basically hands it to our crew. And I think if you were to go back earlier into the season, I don't know if they rebound quite like they did in this episode. I think, I, I think it would take them down more peg. And I really think it was a great way to show how much the crew has advanced and gained confidence as a unit and with, within themselves. I was kind of curious what you thought of that. Norman. Well, you know, I had this interesting, uh, I didn't have the discussion, but I've been reading discussions online about like, how are these kids able to do what they do? Like, they're just kids. And I'm like, well, not they're not kids. It's not like they're four or five-year-olds, like, running around. I mean, they, they're in their, you know, teens-esque, you know? And they're also aliens. So aliens mature just like uh, just like Kess, like in Voyager. She's two years old or something like that. And But, you know, she ages differently than humans. So I never really put kind of like stock faith in equating human years versus alien years. Anyway, that's beside the point. But it's... They've been working since day one on working with each other and learning their strengths and weaknesses. Almost every episode, you see them challenged with something like as early on as the, uh, you know, that problem with the chicken, the boat, like, you know, the flower, you know, or whatever that problem was. And then you start working the things out and then you start trusting, you know, your crew. And then don't forget, like people forget you know, because it was like, you know, last year, it was like eight months, nine months ago when you had a uh, moral star part one and two, when Dal and all the crew trusted each other up to a point to do that daring rescue on Tars Lamora to save, um, to save Gwen and to do what they did to steal, you know, the diviner ship. So it's not like they haven't earned anything. They've earned every single moment of them being able to work together almost intuitively. And that's why when rock did what she did, she knew that she would have set off a chain reaction to be able to do one thing. And then another crew member would do another thing. And another crew member would do another thing because they know what they're capable of. They trust what they're capable of. That's what a crew does, right? So I, I really do take kind of like an issue with people saying, well, they're just kids and they don't know what they're doing. That means you haven't watched the show. Flat out, you have not watched the show and you, you haven't seen the earned moments for 19 out of the 20, 21 minute episodes that they put out. 
you know, and I say, and if anyone has an, you want to discuss that with me, there's my name, Kyle at a Kyle W. So. <laughs> Amy, I think the crew really did grow a lot in this, in this first season, not only with that example with the dreadnought, but also when they lose their ability to communicate with each other. And yet we find out Gwen can speak all the languages, but they all stayed, they panicked for a second, but then got their heads together and came calm. Do you, do you think this episode really did show how much the crew has grown from the start? Oh yeah, most definitely. And especially with Dahl and his progress, because he was, you know, looking out for numero uno. It was just all about him and how can he escape? And, you know, so we get to see them grow. One thing I really liked um, about this episode also was that fight scene when they were fighting against Dreadnought. Um, I hand-to-hand combat just sort of isn't really my thing. I like more of the lasers or, I don't know, a good batleth every once in a while. But with Dreadnought, I'm like, my gosh, way too advanced. But it was thrilling. Um, the That new gravity... Uh, the grenade. Uh, grenade. Grenade. Thank you. Yeah. I kept thinking Gatorade, and that was not right. <laughs> that gravity grenade. That was so brilliant, and like just how was able to go through each one of them. Um, I really liked that fight scene. I just wanted to throw that out there too. Kevin, what about you? What do you, do you think this episode really showed? How much the crew has grown? Yeah, and you know, looking back on the rest of the season, uh, it's it's been fun to see that happen and then kind of gel as a team. But more importantly, they're like a family as well, you know. And, and I think that they've not, you know, and you can look at uh, crews, you know, um, in other situations becoming a family as well, and and understanding each of their limitations and also what they exceed at. And I think that uh, they've all kind of found their little niche and they're able to uh, kind of push themselves a little bit. And that's another cool thing that's been cool about the writing is that they've been, you know, showing you that these guys are learning more. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to look back on the first part of the season and, and, you know, not always trusting each other, you know, and then, then you see Morph, you know, go through his little, you know, uh, Genesis as well. And uh, he's kicking a little butt, which I liked as well. So, yeah. I got to say, too, one of the cooler scenes for me is when you first see the Diviner, the Dreadnought, and Essentia walking onto the bridge of the ship. And a great moment with Holographic Janeway. And Holographic Janeway gets a great moment in this episode, and she gets great moments in the next episode. But um, just just an amazing moment there. and But... They just look so evil walking onto the bridge, Norman. <laughs> well, I got to. I mean, like I was thinking, like any any Star Wars fan that watched this, were like, well, that's just you know, that's one of those you know, major league like enforcer droids from like Phantom Menace, you know, and he's walking <laughs> around. Also, he's he's advanced tech. You know, he came back from the future, so of course he's going to be a little bit more advanced. Of course he's going to see you know have things in his arsenal that he's incapable of. My or people are incapable of defending against. But my big thing, and I mentioned this on on, on my show. How do they mask his energy signature on a starship? You know, he turned like from a table into Dregnock and he has his own power signature inside a Federation starship. I mean, th- those guys can, they know when like a phone call is being made, like let alone a battle droid alien power source. I'm like, you know what though? Just like the, um, like the battle scene, Amy, it's like one of those, look, you got to give up something for the greater story. Right. <laughs> um, it 
And I know that Star Trek fans will drill down on things like that. And I do too. I'm not going to be a hypocrite, but it's just one of those kind of things where I'm like, well, maybe if we had 49 minutes, we could probably gotten to there, but does it really change the story? Not really. Right. So, and I think the whole thing with the space battle, maybe for kids, it was just good that they weren't all just obliterated, like in a second, you know, for yeah, kids. Yeah, keep in mind, this is a kid's show. Yeah. So either that or like the, um, the, uh, like the Duranium alloy has just gotten really, really good with Starfleet. So I don't know. Or the lasers have just gotten really bad. <laughs> Amy, you wanted to add something? Yeah. So Kyle, when you were describing, you know, the three of them walking onto the bridge and just that, how that was shot. And that actually reminded me, I was looking at that going, who directs these animated shows? Because you know, I understand what a director does and like, okay, I want this shot. And so this camera angle is going to be here and I want a close up. And I, I can understand, I can see that. But when you're doing that with a drawing, you don't have an angle all around the drawing. It's like, you have to tell them, I want a drawn of this close up, or I want a drawn with, you see them walking onto the bridge and this commanding, like, that direction has to be done way before any of the voice. I don't know. It just, it made me think, how do you direct an animation? Who are you directing? It, it, it's a totally different style. That's why yeah. you, you, you don't see too many directors who cross over that much. The ones who do are extremely talented. Right. Yeah. Anyways, I Mr. just was thinking about that. <laughs> While we've been talking, the Union Federation computer has dropped out some trivia and some tropes. Can you help me out here a little bit? <laughs> of course, yes. So uh, one of the uh, Defiant class ships bears registry, registry NS47205, denoting that it is USS Defiant, the hero ship from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Given the timeline, this would become this would be the second Defiant of its class, which was originally designated the USS Sao Paulo. Um. Let's see here. The uh, the Starfleet the Starfleet um, fleet scene here consists entirely of sovereign class, star class, and oddly centaur type class, plus the protostar and USS Dauntless. While the other ship classes appeared prominently in the Star Trek franchise, the centaur type only appeared briefly in the later seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The Centaur was a kit dash ship built by the special effects team out of parts of commercially available Excelsior and Miranda class model kits. It is so obscure that it has been never given an official class designation, being referred to as a Centaur type based on the name of the first example appear on screen, the USS Centaur. Yeah. It looks like a lot like the Akira class ship too, because you know they have like the down swooping nacelles. And uh, for all of you fan film, uh, Star Trek fan film fans out there, the Centaur was actually the inspiration for the ship that we saw in Prelude to Axanar, the Axanar class ship. Oh, very cool. Mm -hmm. Nice. We got, we got a few tropes here, too, including Kevin. One of the tropes they pulled was that big damn kiss. <laughs> Less on the big damn, Dow follows Gwen to the armory trying to stop her from attacking Starfleet officers from the interest Starfleet Academy. Gwen tries to tell him that he won't be allowed in a Starfleet because of his augment nature, but he kisses her before she can finish misreading the situation. Though the two are stunned by the moment, Gwen doesn't let herself get sidetracked and finishes her thought. 
Gwen, Gwen's a badass. She's just like you know, <laughs> on point, on mission. You get, I, I'm not thrown off by this at all. While doll, dolls being all embarrassed, Kevin, it's a classic movie movie trope, but compartment. She, she, she's she's hiding it right there in the back of the brain, going, "Hmm, okay." <laughs> like all of a sudden, this became like a John Hughes movie. Right. <laughs> yes. It's like Dal's like Ferris and well no, actually Ferris never kisses a girl unintentionally. He always has much intention. Yeah, um, the Dow's gonna show up with the um 3D boom box in a later episode somewhere down the line. Right. <laughs> um the cameo, uh one of the sovereign class ships is the Enterprise E, and that's cell bearing the NCC 1701 E registry in a freeze frame bonus. The defiant is also visible throughout. If I was around a lot in this episode, it was causing a lot of havoc for people. It I think there sense. was more than one, too, right? There wasn't just one. Yeah. It makes sense, though, that that ship is during this future future timeline after the deep, you know, after Deep Space Nine and and Voyager, because it was it's it's a pretty bad badass ship, and you know it's a one of those ships that is probably a good attack ship as well. Mm. Tough little ship. <laughs> Little, <laughs> but that goes to Amy's point. If you're going to bring a Defiant and then they're going to like unload quantum torpedoes on a ship, that ship is done, right? <laughs> and that's what yeah. the Defiant was like designed to do. You see it in like Sacrifice of Angels, right? That two parter in Deep Space Nine, and that thing was wrecking ships. Like li yeah. that little bitty thing was just destroying ships like 10 times yeah. its size. Mm -hmm. But again, it's the whole you know, got to make this battle last longer, you got to draw out all that emotion out of the kids, right. Well, and, and one final uh, trope, a little continuity, a um, little nod to lower decks here. Similar to the Texas class situation several years earlier, ships infected by the living con construct turn red and completely lock anyone out of their systems, but at a much grander scale. Oh, man, that's right. So a little lower deck animated love between the two Star Trek <laughs> animated shows there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to ask uh, Norman a question. Do you like the fact that Murph has kind of gone to this humanoid thing or do you miss him as a blob? I love them both. I really do. I mean, I think that Murph, he has to earn like moments to like, you know, can I capture your heart? And the original blob Murph, obviously, you know, we loved, you know, he was funny. He ate stuff. He, he ate a protostar, right? You know, he hit a protostar <laughs> in his belly. Uh, the new one though, if there's one thing that I've learned, like I've questioned a lot of like certain decisions and, you know, and as, as a fan usually does, and we put these on podcasts and we, you know, debate them to nth degree, but these guys know what they're doing. Like the, the creators of this show and their writers and their staff, these guys know what they're doing. Right. I'm not, I, I really probably am not going to be surprised or critical until the entire thing's done. Then I can say like, Oh, that beat didn't really work for me or that character change didn't really work for me. But as of right now, you know, it, it's hard to say. It's I love Murph for what he did, like going, uh, you know, going toe to toe with Dreadnought and pretty much the only one until he couldn't. Um, I'm just glad he didn't get hurt, you know, and he's like Groot. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to see little you wanna see little Murph grow up and what's little Murph going to grow up into? Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I want to see Rico Suave Murph, but you know. What I'm <laughs> uh, but you, you, you know, if, if if he's on track, like evolutionary wise, that means he's going to have a major evolutionary shift at least once every ten episodes. Mm. So, right. And we're going to be due for one next season. 
Right. Maybe that's not going to be our big cliffhanger between, you know, uh, episodes, uh, what would be, it would be 21 through 30. Yeah. I like saying that 21 through 30 episodes. <laughs> Works for me. Guys, do you, any of you have any final comments before we teleport out of this away mission and take a quick break? There was um, one piece of trivia that I wanted to bring up, and it was the um, Bernari security guard that was at the very beginning of the episode. Because there was a season five episode of Voyager where, um, I don't remember the name of the episode offhand, but a handful of these rebels were like put in the Voyager's pattern buffer in their transporter to escape kind of like basically like a bloodhound, you know, um, kind of Gestapo. Uh, they were looking for these telepaths. And then one of these young girls became the security officer that let go of that, that Janeway um, met in the brig. That's the girl who let her go. And she's basically said this act of kindness paid forward like so many years later because she was one of the girls that Janeway saved in the Delta Quadrant. So little, little note with that too. When they, that nice reference happens, there. Yeah. Yeah. You hear a little bit of Voyager's music in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Nami doesn't miss a beat in this entire, like literally doesn't miss a beat in this entire series. Her musical cues, and we'll get to those in part two, are phenomenal. So good. There's, she's just unbelievably good. Yes. Um, Kevin, Amy, any final thoughts on part one? Ah, that's it. Let's, uh, yeah. let's get to the next one. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to transport out of this away mission and tell you what else is going on around the Fandom Podcast Network and the BQN Network. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our fandom flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Hair Metal Podcast. We cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Lethal Mullet, an action film podcast covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show. Our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU Podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. The Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom.
Welcome back to the Union Federation Podcast here on the Phantom Podcast Network and on the BQN Network. Hopefully we are feeding your ears with some great subspace signal podcasts and keeping you entertained. We are back and we are here to talk Star Trek Prodigy Supernova Part 2, the climactic episode of Season 1 of Star Trek Prodigy. Miss Nelson, would you care to give us the mission log for Part 2? Yes. The Protostar crew determined they can prevent the continued destruction of the Starfleet Armada by taking the ship to protowarp and simultaneously destroying it. They only have manual control of the systems, meaning someone will have to stay behind. Hollow Janeway sacrifices herself while the others escape on a hastily built shuttle. Destruction of the Protostar creates a wormhole to point 52 years in the future where Chakotay may still be alive. The crew are placed on trial, but with Admiral Janeway's advocacy, they are cleared of all charges. Although they are not permitted to formally join Starfleet, permission is granted for Janeway to mentor them on her own ship. Gwyn will instead go to her homeworld and att- attempt to prevent the civil war that destroyed her people in the future a mission that may involve meeting her father's younger self. With Gwen heading off on her mission, Admiral Janeway takes the others to begin her new mission, the search for Chakotay. You know what? I can see Norman Wildwild beaming right now. Um, So I'm just going to go, Norman, I need need your first reactions here. Uh, Actually, in the recap, there are a couple things that I thought, you know, were just outstanding and when when i remember and the whole um now kevin i know you're nervous about not getting john noble back and i don't know if he's coming back i really don't i'm not sure if it's an imdb but when amy said a mission that may involve gwen uh, meeting her father's younger self that very well might be john noble coming back you know uh i hope so whenever she reaches solemn and sees him and whatever his name is before he takes the uh, the mantle of diviner and Essentia before she takes the mantle of vindicator because they're both together at the same time they're the same age uh, as we've seen in other episodes of uh, alluded to in other episodes um gosh i don't i don't have enough time i don't have the words to talk about this episode enough although i, I will say this to put it into context if anyone's ever listened to me talk about babylon 5 um which is my favorite series of all time there's an episode, it's the season finale, it's the series finale. And to this day, even though that I know every single word, every single musical note, every single beat, it still reduces me to like just emotional apocalypse. I mean, I, I am devastated by the end of this episode. This episode was a shade close to that for me. This episode brought every single thing from um, um, lost and found, full circle, and it, was, it just emotionally devastated me. And so in good ways and bad ways. Um, And I think that that's just just a true testament to the vision that everyone had for this series. Uh, It's really remarkable. It's it's so special. I didn't I don't want to get into like too many of the plot things because we're going to talk about them. It's just this episode for me was one of the best moments I've ever seen in Star Trek. That's a very powerful statement, but I can see where you're coming from. This episode really hit in a lot of different emotional ways. I was, I was feeling that watching it. What about you, Mr. Reitzel? Anyone else a little disappointed that the Golden Gate Bridge is now just a big solar panel bridge? <laughs> 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 so 
anybody notice that? It's just there's just solar panels on the whole bridge. It's like, what, what do people want to walk out there? You know, transporters, dude. Try, yeah, but there's, there's, <laughs> but, but there's a walk? certain majestic thing about going over that bridge yes, that is cause... just beautiful. And you know, you think it might just become like a destination thing in the future, but now it's just solar panels. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, but I just thought that was kind of odd. Uh, I was really happy how this ended up because I I would have bet money this is not how this season ended up. Because I was expecting the crew to kind of just be out there still exploring. And and then when Janeway came into the picture, I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, is she just going to be the, the holographic you know, captain or whatever? And they're just going to be out there. You know, and what other quadrant doing whatever they can, being chased. But I liked how it, be, it, it actually came full circle back to Starfleet in that they addressed the issues of, you know, Dal and the DNA thing. And, um, and that um, this is something that they want to be part of. And, and I think that them working as a family and as a team. And with Janeway there guiding them, it was nice to see that uh, they, they have a future in that. And uh, I, I was just really pleased that it kind of came to a conclusion without leaving us hanging out in space somewhere, wondering who's who might possibly die and another evil villain still kind of being out there. And, and I felt it felt like a conclusion that was satisfying and uh, yet get you excited for more to come that makes sense no I, th I think that makes perfect sense um amy well what about you how did you feel what were your initial reactions to the second part of supernova yeah i really liked the conclusion of where things are got left off like because you know we learned that doll wasn't going to be able to go to starfleet and then you know janeway was like well there's five of us oh wait there's six of us who's not going and it was like well it's obviously Dal because he can't go to starfleet and you just, in my mind, I was like, okay, it's Gwen and everyone. And then we're, we're going to see how Dal gets around the system. But to have Gwen be the one not joining, not staying, um, I just really felt was a nice transition of where her father started. And again, sort of that continuation of his story where now because she has forgiven her father, she is taking on the mantle and taking on that responsibility as her own. And what a great story it is to have her have her own individual mission that we can get behind. The kids, they're still the other, they're still like as a group, I don't know, are they really going to take on this mission to find Jacote? Like they don't have an individual mission like Gwen now, now has. Um, so I'm thinking that for season two, we're going to get some more of these individual missions with the, with the kids. Watching this episode, like I said, it was so emotionally in so many different directions. But one of the things that I really liked coming out of this episode was it wrapped up season one, but it set so many possibilities for season two, including finding ways to make bring back some characters we didn't think we might see again, but also to give us a new perspective on several of our characters as well. And with, with what they've set up and the direction I think they're going to go for season two, which I'll talk about more and more before we close out this episode, I really 
am excited for what Prodigy is going to bring. But even more so, I'm excited for what Prodigy did with this episode because I thought this episode was incredibly powerful. I'm going to get into a couple of those things here in a little bit when we get into some of our tropes and things like that. But I just, you know, it, it was so well done and so emotional. And you know what? I got to give it to the cast. The cast was phenomenal in this episode. Um, Kevin D. Bradley Baker was doing triple duty in this episode. He he was not only Murph, <laughs> but he was the Vulcan scientist and the Telluride justice in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, D. Bradley Baker. Uh, shout out to him, of course, on his work on Star Wars, Clone Wars, and other series there as well. That dude is just a master at... Uh, uh, at voice talent and it was nice to see him um continuing to uh do his duty here on uh, star trek prodigy but i think we'd be remiss i think the person who steals this episode and i think she's been stealing this show for the last few episodes is kate mulgrew west both holographic janeway and vice admiral janeway um amy talk about wanting to bring back voyager or get those connections and get kate mulgrew back on screen and in real life not just in animation she is she has been a tour de force in this show. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about it and the hype and the buildup that we had, like when it was announced when Patrick Stewart came out onto STLV and said he was coming back as Picard, like, oh my gosh. And then we get Janeway, Kate Mulgrew coming back, reclaiming her role as Janeway, like, oh my gosh. And it almost makes me wonder... Could the other captains come back if they wanted to? I don't know. It would be very interesting that we're going back to these classic shows and bringing those back. And we're getting, I mean, Strange New World. Who knew that that was going to, you know, have legs and take off? Like, and Prodigy, like, it's all started because of Discovery. But I don't know. I just found that interesting. And with Kate Mulgrew, when, uh, sorry, with Janeway, and she was like, yeah, I'll go, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll stay on the ship and, you know, destroy the ship. Um, but just take a copy of my program, total TNG ship in a bottle, right. With Moriarty. And I'm like, well, wait a minute on TNG Moriarty, he needed an entire cube and she's thinking, oh, here, just put it on this little, you know, thumb drive. Mm -mm -mm. I knew when I saw that, I was like, Girl, that is not going to work for you. You have too developed too much. You have outgrown your program. You need something, you know, strong like a ship to run your program. So I sort of saw that one coming. In Star Trek canon, and maybe you can let me know for sure, Norm, is Benjamin Sisko still with the Prophets? Uh, he hasn't returned yet. So okay. I would have to so. say yes. You know, so I was, I was just trying to remember, like, when Amy brought up the question, like, could these other captains or the characters return? I'm like, we need to see where that guy is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Amy, you brought up a good point. This is something that Char and I talked about on the show. On our show, there was a moment where Janeway, she knew that her program wasn't going to fit on an isolinear chip. And I think a lot of, like, the older Star Trek fans, they know that. You know, it's like, that's because you bring in ship in a bottle, Moriarty, etc., and I think that I, I brought this hypothetical up. I think that she had that moment where she could either do one of two things, continue saving her program onto other chips or find that way to use the temporal flexion to point the way to Chakotay. 
And I think that that's where she was like, I'm going to do both. I'm going to let these children grow from this protostar, the protostar explosion that Rock like referenced. She's like, when Janeway removes herself, the children grow up. Right. But at the same time, though, it doesn't mean that I can't still do the one thing that I've wanted to do as the holographic, you know, you know, um, uh, counselor for the ship. And I'm going to find my way back to Chakotay or I'm going to point the way for Admiral Janeway to do that. So I think that in that moment, it's a huge hypothetical. But I think that she had kind of like the agency to say, I can serve both crews. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that Janeway would do. Mm -hmm. um, so but you're right. You're like, there's. No one little floppy drive is going to hold the entire holographic program. No way. No way. But the kids didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Also, in that entire scene where she turns to them and says that it was an honor serving with you, really listen to Kate. The break in her voice when she said that started me crying uncontrollably until the shuttle was gone. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. This, this show has devastated me just from, from that point on. Right. Uh, and I think you bring up a good point, too, because I think one of the things that was so amazing about Kate's performance in this was the different. She made holographic Janeway just enough different from Vice Admiral Janeway. And mm. that, uh, there were these little differences, Norman, that I, I noticed throughout the show, especially as but especially in these last few episodes where you see where the path that holographic Janeway went with these kids kind of maybe made her make some Janeway-like decisions, but different than how vi the Vice Admiral would, cha would change, where you have the Captain Janeway on the Protostar versus the experiences the Vice Admiral's had since that hologram was written. Right. So it's interesting in a little bit of the personality divergence between the holographic Janeway and the actual Janeway. So I found that very interesting as well. But we do have some Easter eggs and trivia and some tropes here. And I got a couple here that I found interesting. We were just talking about the holographic Janeway. This is not the first time the crew of a ship has had to deal with the possibility of not being able to take a sapient hologram crew member with them when evacuating the ship. The same scenario was discussed on Voyager in Eye of the Needle, where they had no means of beaming the doctor out with the possibility of when the possibility of rescue presented itself. So... It's something Janeway's had to deal with before. Was um, I wait, was I the Neil the one with the uh, the Romulan that uh, um, was that the, was that the one? Yeah, that was von Armstrong. That was von when they Armstrong. found in the first yes. season when they found that very small wormhole and they were just able to. Yeah, you know, that's right. And he was type. from a he was like from a different time though. There was like yeah. a time difference. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. So by the time he was able to get the message to Starfleet, yeah. it would have been 20 years, his future. And he already yeah. passed. Great. Great episode. That's a good one. Heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 In a great moment of going back to the beginning of the show, Norm, Dal uses Gwen's malaproper phrase cat boots from the first episode when she so corrects to cahoots. It's so adorable. <laughs> I can't stand it. <laughs> yeah, come, now, come on. The actual real moment between them was so cute and tender. When they actually do really kiss. See, for me, I'm, I'm gonna I'm totally going YA here. But for me, it wasn't the kiss. It was the it was the pinky hug. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm just like yes. oh, yes. pinky hug. <laughs> like kiss, <laughs> kiss, kiss, kiss. But that's like the the pinky hug is the kind of thing that you can you can steal <clears throat> in public in a public situation where you just and when people see that you're like oh that's even more powerful than like an overt kiss I think so. Mm -hmm. 
That's just me being all YA. So I'm just saying, right? No, I, I, it was to me right afterwards too. The the little smile they shared right after they kissed. Yeah, that was that was it. Come on, come on, Kevin. You're our romantic around here. Yeah, I liked it. It was a nice moment, and and it's a silly thing to notice as well. But how well the animators made that moment even more um, emotional because seeing the body language, you know, and seeing the look in the face, and that that kiss was a tender kiss too. It was nice, you know. I know. Again, with the direction of yeah. okay, the camera angles come in right on the pinkies, and they just overlap. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I I loved it. It was again. I'm like great direction. Uh, whoever directed it. This was uh, Ben Ibon, uh and he directed some of like the powerhouse episodes. Obviously, he directed the pilot. He directed Moral Star Part Two. This, mm. um, and he usually like works like hand in hand with the Hagemans. So they. There's um, something that I asked them before. There is not a single wasted uh, second in an animated uh, feature because animating something costs a lot of money. Voicing something costs a lot of money. So these are all very well meticulously crafted even before any of the rendering starts. So Ben and these guys are probably storyboarding. They're probably doing a, like a lot of um, live action, probably uh, study just to see how these camera moves would work. And then they start animating. But once they start animating, once they start rendering, you can't go backwards. Right. So very, very, very meticulously planned out. So it was ultimately decided it wouldn't be fair for the crew to jump ahead in line when many other promising applicants to Starfleet went through the proper procedures to be accepted. So Janeway, much like Picard did with Wesley Crusher, making him acting ensign Wesley Crusher, pulled some strings to get the crew posted as warrant officers under her command a nice throwback to some a little bit of touching moments in next generation as well as picard makes wesley an acting ensign um well nice heartfelt moment right there with uh, and knowing that they're going to stay together under janeway which makes sense for i think several reasons and i think janeway had a little bit of a secondary reason for that as well Well, they've had some on the job training too so (laughs) (laughs) which i thought was kind of cool so uh, another great moment, I think it was one of my favorite moments of the episode, was the Patrick Stewart speech. Janeway gives an impassioned speech defending the kids when Starfleet seeks to punish them for their possession of the protostar and the antics they got into trying to get to Starfleet. Well, I'm going to read this real quick. But one year ago, not one of them had ever heard of the Union Fe- United Federation of Planets. Yet by fate, engineered by their own ingenuity, they set their compass to Starfleet, and without their intervention, I cannot say with certainty all of us would be sitting here this day. Jankum kicks in. Go get him, Janeway! <laughs> the protostar named after the early stage of the formation of a star powered by it, we designed a ship that could explore the far reaches of our understanding in hopes of finding others who share our ideals so that we may create a stronger alliance. Stack up those tests, the psych evaluations, interviews. They don't hold a candle to what this crew has been through. And concerning the Augment, whose name you've conveniently forgotten, his name is Dal Rael. Is he genetically engineered? Yes. Was he enhanced in every way? Look at him. Of course not. But his heart is bigger than any in this room, I should know. The Federation is made up of over 150 member species. Dal's DNA includes 26 of those. So I ask you, is there a better living embodiment of what our alliance represents? 
This was one of the best moments I think ever in Star Trek. Period. Norm, you took the you gasp did. sigh right out of my hand. Oh my god, <laughs> I love it. That, that, he's like, ah, oh. like ah, oh, the shade was so good. <laughs> You're right, Kyle. It's it's such an incredible speech, and it's something that has been debated about since this episode came out was you know the um the issue with the augments and you know augmented DNA or manipulated DNA past you know the uh, the the laws of the eugenics wars and how inflexible they are. I mean, it goes all the way back to what we saw in, you know, strange new worlds with number one, you know, cause you know, being genetically altered herself and she, you know, turned herself in spoiler alert. We've already done the spoiler alert though. You know, she turned herself in because, you know, she is violation. She's walking violation of Starfleet protocol. So what does that mean? It's like, is this like one of Starfleet's like last holdouts of being exclusive? Right. And isn't Starfleet supposed to be, you know, this body of inclusivity and, you know, accepting of different races and, you know, different cultures and, you know, that what makes us different. And I think that this speech is something that maybe the Hagemans are pushing that envelope just a little bit like, look, this is what we learned about Star Trek. Right. So if you're going to have this like this immovable law, like, you know, this immutable law of exclusion, then. What does that really mean anymore, you know, in, in the fandom? Is that what we're going to be teaching the kids? You're, you're good enough except for this one thing. That what makes you different, right? So does that mean genetically if my color's different or if I'm different in some kind of physical way or different in some kind of mental way, does that exclude me from something that's supposed to be embracing? I, I think that that was a, it was a good tipping point for them to be able to say, no, I don't think that this applies anymore, you know? And of course, it's going to like spark a huge debate, you know, with kind of the purists out there, but that's what it's for. You know, I think it, it opens up discussion. Yeah. I think with, um, that ban and how ridiculous it is now that we're seeing it in hindsight, but the exceptions that we see in Starfleet, those exceptions aren't the people who intentionally got modified, right? Like doll, Bashir. Obviously yeah. someone created doll. Bashir, it mm -hmm. wasn't his choice. It was his parents, right? right. Like the, these are the exceptions of this is why we can, and are we going to open it up? And you look, think about why do we have a ban on it in the first place? And that sort of gets retconned to the destruction of Mars and the Planitia Utopia, mm -hmm. right? And the sense and that, and so we have a, entire law banning out of fear this law was created out of fear which we as starfleet are not supposed to do we're supposed to be better we're supposed to overcome that so that is a great thing that we can explore and i hope that they do and that prodigy is getting on this like in the um ready room uh the who plays doll cute kid Brett, he was Brett like Gaw. Yeah, Brett uh, was like, this is the maybe one of the last prejudices that Starfleet has to go through. And I think it would be great to explore that and talk about why do we create laws out of fear? That is mm -hmm. a huge thing that we are seeing in this day and age. I mean, there's a huge difference between like passing a law that stops a Khan Noonien Singh from taking over the world, right? Versus, again, someone who had no choice 
you know, in his own birth, you know, he was and genetically created as such. So there has to be, and this is where I kind of like take a little bit of issue with Star Trek in general at times. I mean, take a look at the tribunal that they put in front of these kids, all dressed in black, standing on high, you know, and just judging, right? You know, and I wish they had a human up there. I wish yeah, Jellico yeah, was up there because it would have been perfect. Color choice there, Norm. <laughs> how the interesting color choice how the tribunal is all dressed in black not intimidating at all <laughs> no very i mean they, they cut a wonderful figure very sexy for cosplay for sure but there i think that's the, there's a the specific point of they're on high these kids are down low and they're trying to fight you know to become part of this greater thing and there are three people up there representing the united federation of planets saying that um judging them you know for who they are but not necessarily the actions they took so it's like the higher up you get in Starfleet with like the adults and the mature officers, like the more rigid they become in the doctrination of Star Trek. Bureaucracy. Starfleet, or bureaucracy. Yeah. It's very strange. Angelico being the worst of them. Yeah. Like the absolute worst of them. As much as I liked him in Chain of Command, but that's another thing. <laughs> right. Any thoughts on this, Kevin? Yeah. You know, When I was, it's interesting too because when I was watching that scene when they were, uh, you know, all being questioned and judged and stuff, it kind of reminded me of this the recent uh, season of Picard, you know, when everyone's gone like full on military and, you know, and uh, prejudiced. And it kind of reminded me of that type of situation where, you know, it, it's a power play you know, when they do stuff like that. And it's, you're, you know, you're supposed to, uh, in a way, look down on the people that you've, in a way, sometimes already have judged, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's done, it's done, you know, on purpose as well. And there's a reason why the White House is, is uh, shaped the way that it is and the way that it's done. And, you know, it's, it's to show a, a moment of power. And, um, you know, and I was, I was flashing back to all of these judgment scenes for movies even even judge dread was sylvester stallone you know how they're looking down on him like this you know and stuff like mm -hmm. that and and uh you know being dressed in black and it's just like wow they're really kind of you know playing this uh this horde here but uh it, it was um it, it it was satisfying to see janeway go up to bat for these kids and uh really kind of uh call starfleet out on this this fear that they're still um basing this these these previous judgments on and, and not looking at the bigger picture and and also looking at uh you know people like like dal who you know not being made to be superior but in a way an experiment and in dal's case you know i think it worked out for him quite well you know and uh, uh i think that he is a good example going forward of uh you know if you were created, you know, um, kind of got throwbacks to, to, to data a little bit too, how people were put off by data, you know, and then look what happened to him. I think that's a very fair comparison because I want to get one other thing in here because it's the off screen moment of awesome. And that is the fact that the crew of the protostar somehow managed to fly themselves to earth in a barely functional shuttle with no navigational computer, and it happens all off screen. But we see how badass the crew has become. <laughs> I'm sure Rock figured something out. Rock always yeah. figures something out. Right? <laughs> yes. 
speaking now, Norman, of, speaking wanna... of which, I don't I don't know if it was I don't see it in the notes, but I, I gotta say this because it was literally like one of my favorite moments, and it was very quick. And if you didn't know who you were looking at, it may have passed you by. But the uh, the science officer that taps Rock on the back and asks Rock, you know, you seem really good with Murph. Have you considered like xenobiology? That's Dr. Aaron McDonald. Okay, so that's Dr. Aaron Mack. She's a science advisor for not just Prodigy, but for I think every uh, Paramount Plus show now, starting with Discovery. Am I am I right, Amy, or earlier maybe? But I know that she's a science advisor for this era of Star Trek. Right. Um, she voices the, new... the character. No, yeah. she was the she was the science officer that tapped Murph on the back and said, "Have you considered a role in xenobi or um, you know?" Uh, you know, studying xenobiology and she had like long cascading red yeah. hair. Yeah. She's a science advisor for this show. She's the one that created things like temporal inflection and the time ring oh, that rock went okay. through. She also has, um, she's also put out her own, like my first star Trek science book. So she is, she's the big brain in the room. Right? So and she, she lent the voice. Did, did they, did they um, mold the characters look after her as well? Yes. Exactly yeah. like her. When yeah. I saw, I was like, oh my gosh, that's Aaron. And it was her voice. She's, she's been That on is so cool. Earl Grey. We've interviewed her on galaxy class. Like she knows us. Like she's as awesome down to earth cool. person, like incredible. I mean, she said that Star Trek is what inspired her to go into science. So yeah. she's she really is one of those type of full circle fans. Mm -hmm. um, she's unbelievably like just well loved in the community, and she loves the community back. And she loves being able to to make sure that that science is well represented, but not in a, and especially in Prodigy, but not in a way where it takes you out of the story, where it really just it informs the story, but without you getting lost. Cause there's some of these equations where I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. There's a guy though that I know that's written out like these equations and he's like a physicist or something like that. And he goes, Nope, all her math is hundred percent on the screws. I'm like, wow, <laughs> of course it is. Like, why wouldn't it be <laughs> right? Not like making stuff up. Like I am this entire show. So, right. <laughs> but yeah, great right. to see Aaron Mack. Awesome. I want to give you a chance to, cause you want to talk about the music. So, you know, there, there are moments in, um, and we all love our own movies and film. You know, they all speak to us for whatever reason. But I think that there's those special moments where what you see on screen is also accompanied by this wonderful, just remarkable piece of music that you know, just brings every single possible emotion out of you. And there's a scene where the kids get into the shuttlecraft and then everything is pretty much just scored over the action. And you're li listening to Nami Melumud's score, and it's just so heartbreaking because these kids are saying goodbye to the ship. Janeway's like, she says, go fast, takes the protostar to protowarp before it explodes. And this entire thing is just superbly underscored by this incredible piece of music. Um, and I hope, and they haven't, uh, they haven't announced it yet, but I hope that entire season like, is given like the due of an actual soundtrack that comes out because her music first of all she is like the first i believe that nami is the first full main composer female composer for a star trek series ever so that's amazing um and then just the music that she comes up with is it's better than most that i've heard on any other major series she's fantastic i can't say enough about her that's so cool uh, very cool. 
I'm going to give each of you guys a chance if you have any thought, final thoughts on this episode of Star Trek Prodigy, a part two supernova that we haven't dis- discussed. Kevin? Uh, I... I just want to say that uh, visually stunning is the word that comes to me with this series. And the season finale did not disappoint with that. And uh, I, I like the fact, too, that you get like the real like open cockpit canopy glass thing to where they can look out and see everything. And that as a viewer, you really get to see what they see as well. And the bridge design is just phenomenal. If you want to call them virtual sets or whatever it is, it's just, I, these are the things that I really look onto and that they have a well-lit bridge too. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just in, in just seeing this, the details and all in, in the emotion that, an animated series can bring, I, I find uh, another feather in its cap for Prodigy. And uh, I did not want that to go unnoticed or unmentioned as well. So Yeah, this episode, so much emotion in this episode. What about you, Amy? Any final thoughts on this particular episode as this, and the, the season finale as a whole? No, because my thoughts are going to be for the season. Okay. okay. Norman, what about you? Any final thoughts on Supernova Part 2? Uh, I liked what Kevin said. I mean, I think that the uh, the explosion that created the it hasn't been named yet, so it's going to be interesting to, to see what they name that nebula. So is it the Janeway Nebula? Is it the coffee is in that nebula? Whatever that nebula is going to turn into, uh, the color palette of this entire season has been amazing. But especially in this episode, because when that when the protostar exploded, it's like it reminded you of like why this entire series special because it's colorful and it's vibrant and it's beautiful and it's exciting and it's energetic and and it, but then it kind of like reduces into this small little problem that this crew has to solve and they have to lean on each other and here's a small little detail when when the shuttlecraft gets sucked out into space it's shuttlecraft six as in all six of them right so not seven because janeway wasn't with them so it was just one of those, like, I saw the six. I'm like, oh, my God, this show's going to kill me. <laughs> right? It's just tearing my heart into pieces. And then, yeah. So anyway, um, great. Uh, I think it was a great season finale um, helmed by the Hagemans and, Dan, and and Benny Bond. And, you know, when you put that team together, it's it's really special. It's really remarkable. because the, the, the talent, you know, with those three is um, it's really impressive. With that, we're going to transport out of this away mission and come back and give our final thoughts on Prodigy Season 1. Okay, guys, we discussed the season finale that we need to give this full season uh, some love. I I just got to personally say I was very excited for Star Trek Prodigy. I love the animation of the look. But what I have been so just completely blown away by, and I have no problem saying this at this point right now, I truly believe Star Trek Prodigy is the best written Star Trek of this era as it stands right now. It's developed its characters. It's kept the story tight. They've, they've, it's been fun. It has been an amazing bridge to, for families to bring new generations into Star Trek for both the parents and the kids to watch with it being a children's show but not feeling like a children's show very much at all. This season took directions I never expected with it. And to be where we're at now, when we go back from the first part of the season, 
what an amazing ride and what an amazing story um from top to bottom from directing to music to animators to voice actors everything star trek prodigy nailed it and i am so excited about the different prospects and ideas that they can do for storylines in season two we can see john noble return as the diviner is there a fact that Janeway and the her new warrant officers go into the rift, go 52 years in the future, and maybe that's the next time Dahl sees Gwen, an older Gwen, going through the <sighs> going through the time portal, um, a reunification with holographic Janeway on the version of the protostar that Chakotay is on, that's still in that time timeline. That a lot of interesting possibilities they've opened up and they've done it so intelligently and they don't have to give it to you all right now. One, we can even have in season two, two parallel stories going on the story of Janeway and the crew and Gwen's story where we, we are seeing what's happening with Gwen while the crew is doing their thing. So it's beautifully set up. It's so well-written. Um, I'm going to say it right now. There's several Star Trek writers rooms that could take a lot of lessons from Star Trek prodigy. And it would it would greatly improve some things, but guys, I'm going to give you a chance. Um, Kevin, you first. What were your overall feelings on season one of Star Trek Prodigy? Going into Prodigy, knowing that it was going to target a younger audience, I was afraid that it was going to be too kitty, as I put up the air quotes, and that they were going to kind of dumb it down a little bit. And I'm like, I don't want to dumb down Star Trek, and they did not do that at all. There's little moments that, you know, kids can look at and have some fun with and, you know, maybe didn't entertain the adults as much as. But I got to tell you, man, they really stepped up the uh, uh, the storyline without having to dumb it down for anyone, yet still make it appealing for all ages. And that's tough to do, you know, there might be certain things that are more appealing to older and or younger audiences, depending on what it is. Um, I can only think of maybe a couple of things that I would have liked to have seen, you know, um, maybe addressed a little bit more, but uh, I think that they did a really good job of kicking up the Star Trek lore and uh, uh, also it's taking place during a time that a lot of fans had questions about where Star Trek was after Voyager, after Deep Space Nine. And it, it's, it's setting its own footprint during that timeline, which I find fascinating. And I didn't think I was going to get that with an animated series and be satisfied with it. And I am. And I think that's really important. And it goes a lot to the creator's of this show of yes, targeting a younger audience, but not letting and not disappointing the older audience that has been with Star Trek all this time and giving us a, re a reason to watch it and seeing what happens. Oh wait, Janeway's in this. How oh, okay. So now, you know, they're making the connections during these different timelines. And I think that they've done a really good job of that. And I'm really excited to see what they're going to do going forward. Amy, before we started this voyage down Prodigy, you were skeptical. You've been a little skeptical. Star Wars and eh, or Star, Star Trek animated. Obviously, Lower Decks won you over pretty quickly. 
you were still a little nervous about Prodigy being it. Oh, is it going to be too much of a kiddie show? What's going on here? I think you've been more than pleasantly surprised by what we've done. Yeah, definitely taking a look back over this season. Uh, the first half, I was definitely more questioning, but the second half, man, it really got me. And to see where the characters were and where they are, like that is beautiful. Each one has their own story. They have a story together as a crew and now as a family we have a lot of science stuff going on too, like how they destroyed that protostar and now it's this, you know, time warp or that gravity grenade, as I talked about, or the awesome time delay episode that I love, love, love all that math. Like they had such a good amount of science fiction, of character development, of the pacing of bringing, you know, classic characters and brand new aliens in it. They just did it so well and very simplistically. Like it, you don't have to have major complex storylines, <clears throat> Discovery, um, when we've got here <laughs> this lovely... Who am I and who am I with my friends? Like, that's everyone's story. And it's so simple and it's brilliant. So I really like where Prodigy has taken us. It's a very good show. Now, Norman, I reached out to you when Prodigy returned from its hiatus about coming on. And you yeah. said, give me a... Give me a little time because I want to watch a few episodes and get absorbed into it. Well, mm -hmm. here we are at the season finale. I, like I said, I've been following. I follow you on social media. I know your love of this show, and it's reflected in this episode. But give us your thoughts overall, season one, Star Trek Prodigy. I mean, I remember. I think I was like with a lot of people when I, I saw like uh, some of the trailers from Nickelodeon or online, and you know, me being a fan, like I love Clone Wars, I love Rebels. And then when you see like the first couple of like sample minutes of uh, Star Trek Prodigy, you're like, well, that is kind of aping Rebels and Clone Wars and they're sticking Star Trek on it. You know, but um, I, I have to bring up a, a short story here. So for a mission log, we were looking at how can we take a look at this show, which is obviously unique. And it didn't have a show on its own. And we, we couldn't like overlap it with some of the live action shows that we were doing for Mission Log Live. So Rod came up with this brilliant idea. It's like, well, let's focus it. Uh, let's focus a podcast that speaks directly to the kids, you know, get them involved, see where they are, what they're learning and what kind of an audience that this is building for, you know, this young adult audience. Uh, and what I love about this series is that it walks this really wonderful fine line between both age groups, you know, the an older age group that understands the references and understands the lore of Star Trek and a younger age group that doesn't know all of this, doesn't know the history. It certainly doesn't know like anywhere between the, the 57 years and all the different series in between, you know, of Star Trek, but they are still getting morals, meanings, and messages out of it. They, they are still learning that teamwork is important, that respect is important, you know, that, you know, listening, uh, learning from your mistakes is important, that listening to your friends and trusting the people that are around you is important, that found family is important. These are the things that are getting parsed out every single episode, right? There's a moral that can be found in every single episode. You don't have to mine for it at all. It's right there on the surface. And when you watch that, 
or at least when I was watching it, I said, this is the kind of show that I wanted to have when I was 10 years old, you know, when I was 12 years old, my Saturday morning cartoon, right? Because it's like, Amy, you said, it's simple. But at the same time, though, there's a level of complexity for a variety of different audiences. And that's very difficult to do, especially in 21 actual produced minutes, taking the opening and closing credits away. So what makes this, I think, in my opinion, what makes this series so special is that they took a vision. The Hagemans took their vision and they said, this is, this is an opportunity for us to tell a story that hasn't been told in a format and in a tone that hasn't been seen in Star Trek for a long time. It, we, we felt a lot of it in The Next Generation. The Next Generation was the series that brought back a lot of kind of like the Gene Roddenberry-esque moral architecture to, to Star Trek. But in recent years, things have become bigger, more competitive, a little bit more convoluted, harsher, a little bit more bitter, and probably not as in, in a way that's easily digestible by a lot of fans. For however people want to take Prodigy, one thing I think that we all can agree on is that it's very digestible as a series. And when you actually have the opportunity to get that, you can see like how deep those layers go because you're not really fighting the story, right? Just the more times you watch it, the more you get out of it. And sometimes in modern storytelling with Star Trek, you're really fighting against the narrative because there's so much complexity going on, whether it's the plot, whether it's the production, whether it's the acting or lack thereof, right? Or whether are too many characters on screen or just one character that everyone gets the lion's share. So you're not feeling what makes Star Trek Star Trek, and that is the crew and the ship, right? That is the universal basis DNA of Star Trek, a crew that comes together to solve problems on a ship that takes them from planet to planet. It's very simple, right? And this, this series returns us to that in an era that has so much more promise because we haven't seen it before. So it's a really wonderful, perfect storm. And these guys, the entire team from the Hagemans to Ben to Aaron Waltke to Nami to like uh, Bonnie, you know, as uh, the voice of the computer, everyone, all the writers, the, the Benson sisters, you know, uh, Aaron McNamara, um, all the directors, Song Shin, Andrew Schmidt, like all of these people are so dedicated. And that's the one thing I think that everyone can feel in an episode. Even if you don't agree with how it was made or the story that was told, you can feel the dedication, right? That's like going to a restaurant. You can like taste how into the food that chef prepared for you, right? It's just something special. It's like a different cut above. That's what you get out of Prodigy. That's what I get out of Prodigy. I can't speak there for everyone, but you can just feel that it's just a cut above because the people that are behind it really do care. Yeah, I, I think you hit a lot on right on the head there norman and i think prodigy is an amazing show and i think i'm i'm excited because i know season two is coming um i'm excited for what this show is going to bring because i, I do think it brings not only does it give you some classic track but it gives you something new in track and it's I, I love the stories that it's telling and the characters it's given us and i think it's a great addition to the star trek universe as a whole and it has paid very much in tribute to the place where it came from and it's respected where it's come from as well, which with a show like this, they could have went off on a totally different tangent, but no, they've respected the history behind Trek and where it came from. And I think that's, what's been so wonderful about Trek. I'm going to give everybody one chance to ask you, do you have any final thoughts on season one? You want to get out there? Or have you, you feel I like can't follow up what Norman said, Norman uh, yeah. pretty much, you know, nailed yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading this. I'm reading a script. I'm reading a pre-prepared <laughs> statement. I, think I, I don't do any of this just organically. Are you kidding? 
<laughs> with that, guys, it's time to get ready to close out this episode of Union Federation. So let's intercept some subspace signals. Well, I hope you've enjoyed everything here we've been doing on this episode of Union Federation as we have talked Star Trek Prodigy, the season finale, Supernova episodes one, part one and two, as well as our thoughts on the season as a whole. Of course, you can find the Union Federation on the Phantom Podcast Network and on the BQN Network. Um, of course, too, check us out on our Phantom Podcast Network YouTube channel. Give us a like, give us a subscribe, share us out. Uh, you can also find us on the audio version of this podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network Master Feed, as well as the BQN Network. Um, you can find us on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com or on any of your major podcast catchers, including iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Um, you can also email us at theunionfederation at gmail.com. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter at akylew or on Instagram at akylefandom. Kevin, where can people find you these days on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Spartan underscore Phoenix. And Amy, where can people find you when you are not assimilating the rest of the podcasting world? <laughs> well, I am co-hosting a couple shows on Galaxy Class and that show up here on uh, Fandom Podcast Network. That would be, uh, yeah, Galaxy Class and uh, all good things. Yeah, that's what I'm on. You can find me on Twitter, though, at Miss Amy Nelson, and of course, in our Facebook uh, group. Of course, too, uh, hopefully uh, when Picard rolls around, our top-notch science officer will be back with us, Haley, and you can find her on Twitter at Trekkie01D. Norman, when you're not logging missions, where can people find you? <laughs> well, <laughs> most of my time nowadays is spent trying just to support mission log prodigy as we're in the hiatus remember from episode 10 to episode 11 we took a 10 month break so you know hopefully won't well it might be that long because we have a lot of star trek to return to in 2023 so if you follow me at um ml underscore prodigy that's where you can find like most of the stuff that i post about mission log prodigy and then uh, you can always find the mission log standard twitter feed on mission log on twitter and then you can also listen to us on Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast available at a podcatcher near you or on your phone or somewhere. Of course, too, you can find the BQN network at BQN Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or visit the Facebook group, the BQN Collective. You can also visit the Union, Fation, Union Federation Facebook page and the Fandom Podcast Network Facebook page as well to get all the latest happenings in fandom. As for what is up ahead, let's look into the Orb of Prophecy because I will be stepping down temporarily from the captain's chair because it's Mr. Reisel's turn to take back over the Union Federation because he is going to be navigating us through Picard Season 3. Is that not correct, Mr. Reisel? This is right. This is true. Yeah, looking forward to it, seeing, uh, seeing what Picard Season 3 is going to bring for us. And it uh, looks like we've got a, uh, a fun, fun ride ahead of us. Yes. yes. February and... 16th. Go ahead. I was just say it's February 16th, and I appreciate Kevin taking over the captain's chair. While I will be on episodes, I will be also doing my annual trip to the planet Taxium for a couple of months. <laughs> 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 Amy? <laughs> so we do have a little bit of Orville that we can sneak in before Picard starts, because mm -hmm. aren't we going to be discussing that little... Novella. The book. Yes, the novella. Yeah, that took place between a couple of the episodes at the end of the season there. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. So 
listeners, if you haven't read Sympathy for the Devil. Oh wait, oh dear. What's it called? Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, Sympathy, Sympathy for the Devil. Or the Devil. Yes. Yeah. And you can either read that or there is a great audiobook version of it read by Bruce Boxleitner himself. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we will we will get you some taste of the Orville in there as well as we ent- still are highly anticipating news if we will get a season four of the Orville. Norman, we know you love season three of the Orville, right? I hope we get good news. You know, I, I mean, the Orville season three on Hulu was, oh my God, it was amazing. And that Hulu budget, they spared no expense on that show. That show, like every single cent on that show was shown on screen and then some. That was a gorgeous show. Yeah, that it was. But with that, um, we know that Star Trek Discovery Season 5 is to be announced soon, hopefully, and Strange New World Season 2 as well. We'll see what happens. Um, in the meantime, we actually have a break in Star Trek, guys. First break we've had in a very long time of no Star Trek on our TVs for about a five, six weeks span. So I said, we're, we're going to put We'll do a little Orville action, but we're also going to get some repairs to the Union Federation. It's been out on a very long mission, podcasting-wise. So, Did you know in 2022 first... was 47 straight, 47 the magic number, 47 yeah. straight weeks of Star Trek. 47 yes. out of 52 weeks. That's that's a record. <laughs> we felt it, podcasters. Yes, we did. Yeah. Oh, that's true. <laughs> but with that, I want, first of all, Happy New Year to all of the wonderful listeners out there, and especially Happy New Year to the fantastic crew of the Union Federation. Can't do it without you guys. Um, it's always a blast to do this. Um, like I said, hopefully Haley will be returning for Star Trek Picard. And Norman, as always, this is always your home here at the Fandom Podcast Network, no matter where you are. You are one of our co-founders. We miss you, we love you, and we thank you so much for coming on this episode of Union Federation to talk about one of your favorite things brought in. Agreed. Live, logs, and proper. <laughs> <laughs> With that, ladies and gentlemen, hailing frequencies are now closed.